We're going to be going to Luke chapter 6. For those who don't know me, my name is Mick and uh, I've been a part of Calvary here for coming up to six years uh, and have been leading worship for most of those years and uh, my family attend this church as well. So Kendall, my lovely wife and, uh, and the three kids, you probably recognise them, they're the best looking kids here and the smartest and all that. Um, also the noisiest, um, Raphael, Zimri and Amira. Uh, so it's funny, just reflecting on... When you have children, you start to reflect on your own kind of childhood. And uh, I was just thinking about this this week. I've been a Christian now for 18 years. And um, I was... You're going to work out how old I am. But I was 12 when I, uh, when I decided I wanted to follow Jesus. And uh, I was in first year of high school and uh, I said to my mum that year, I said, mum, instead of Easter eggs this year, do you reckon I could get a Bible? And uh, I think that's pretty impressive for a 12-year-old, right? So It probably wasn't very smart because if I had just waited, she was so stoked to get me a Bible, I think I probably could have gotten both. But as it was, I got my Bible and not the Easter eggs and, uh, and I was happy. But I was baptised later that year and, uh, and all was good except that I was first year high school and for anyone who's been a Christian in a, in a high school in a public a rough public high school it's it's tough you know and so there's been lots of ups and downs since then and uh, probably more downs than ups uh, but God's gracious hey but I was thinking about I can't one of the things I love about here is a kids church you know and these and they, we watch our kids go off and they get taught and the relationship that they have with each other as they just get to know each other and they're excited to see each other you know, um, Zim's just waving to all his friends this morning, and oh, hey guys, and um, it's just awesome that they get to be taught in the ways of Jesus, and um, I just can't wait for that day uh, when, they, when they come up to me and say, Dad, I've decided to follow Jesus. I think it's going to be one of the most special days of my life, and uh, so we just keep them in our prayers, hey, because it's a special thing that they're learning out there. Today we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 20 to 36, which is it's half of one of Jesus' most famous sermons, and uh, I'm sure you've come across it before. Um, but first, we're not going to start in verse 20. I'm going to start in verse 17. I want to kind of set the stage a little bit. So if you, um, if you read along with me, Luke chapter 6, verse 17. I'm reading from the ESV. Um, we've got the New King James here, whatever version you've got. You can follow along. As long as you're not reading from the Amplified Version, you'll probably be able to track along pretty well. So, um, Verse 17, and he came, talking about Jesus, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, might be a good place to pray, hey? Let's just uh, bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, um, we want to hear what you have to say to your disciples this morning, God. We want to hear what it is that you've got to say to us. Um, and I pray that you would just prepare our hearts and our minds to understand and to know what it is you want to teach us this morning, God. Uh, you know, pr- protect us from false doctrine, uh, but let us really just be opening our hearts to you. Um, be with us by your spirit, Lord. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I want to go just back a tiny step and give some context here. Um, Jesus, you remember he'd been baptised by John. He'd been tempted. He'd actually been to Jerusalem, John's Gospel records, which is not recorded in the other Gospels, but um, he's been to Jerusalem. He's come and he's done lots of miracles. He's calling disciples. He's kind of doing this, this harvest crusade of the Galilee region, right? And uh, people start following him. It says huge crowds start following him. Um, and he heads up this mountain. And probably in Capernaum, we're not sure, but probably in Capernaum. And he, he, he sits down like a rabbi and teaches the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is recorded in Matthew in chapters 5 to 7. Uh, he then comes down from the mountain, does a few more miracles, calls Matthew, Levi, who wasn't at the Sermon on the Mount, um, and then verse 17 there says he comes down to a level place, it's not on a mountain. So this is the Sermon on the Plain. And a lot of people think that the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount are the same thing, but I think there's enough evidence to really show that they're not the same sermon. It's a different time, a different place, a different method used in his teaching, a different crowd, Um, although there are a lot of similarities, as we'll see, Um, there are even more, I guess, important differences. Number one, the Sermon on the Plain is a lot shorter, um, which is good for today because otherwise we'd be going for hours. Um, it's 30 verses versus 170 verses of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Um, there is some that's in Luke that's not in Matthew. Um, but overall, Luke is kind of like an abridged version of Matthew. He plucks out some of the important things. And the second thing is he's got a different audience. Um, we see in Luke there that huge crowds started to follow Jesus. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, it only mentions his disciples. In the Sermon on the Plain, we know that there's a huge crowd and he addresses his disciples, but everyone else is hearing as well. And there is some content difference as well. Matthew has our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It doesn't have that in Luke. Um, so he really is just targeting this to a particular audience. I guess what I want people to understand is that Jesus doesn't mind repeating himself. Jesus doesn't mind repeating himself. Jesus doesn't mind repeating himself. No, he was an itinerant preacher. And it's, it's obviously, there's some things I think you'll agree that he said that are worth repeating, right? And, uh, and even some things that are worth expounding upon. So let's hear what they are. I, it's kind of, kind of like, you know, your favourite movie, right? Um, Braveheart, all the good movies, Braveheart, um, Shawshank Redemption, Goodwill Hunting any Bourne movie that was ever made. Um, you know, that you, you hear me, right? So you, you could watch them over and over and over again, probably. Um, and it's kind of like that. Jesus is, is teaching his disciples these things that he wants them to hear again. I mean, it's, it's better than Shawshank Redemption because it's for everybody, right? Um, I'm really happy that Kendall loves the Bourne movies, but um, it's not for everybody. This is for everybody. Jesus wants everybody to hear this. Um, the best way to, to get a feel, I think, for what he's saying is just probably to read it through at a regular pace, at, at a pace he would have delivered the sermon in the first place. I'm not going to read it in a different language. Um, and so from verse 20, it says, He lifted up his eyes on you, his disciples, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 
Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The one thing that stands out to me is that that makes me uncomfortable, you know. Um, it's uncomfortable to hear. Um, and the, the last line is okay, you know, your Father is merciful, that's great. I loved hearing that kind of stuff, that's cool. But the rest of it, loving enemies... Being poor, being hungry, I hate being hungry. You know me. I, if you know me, you know I hate being hungry. Like, there'll be a lot of nods because I go to a, you know, an all-you-can-eat restaurant and make it look like a snack bar. It's just kind of, I love to eat. But he's saying, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry. Um, I love a, a quote that C.S. Lewis um, once, it's recorded in, in, um, in a book that he wrote, and it says uh, that someone once criticised C.S. Lewis for not caring for the Sermon on the Mount and um, I think we can apply the same to the Sermon on the Plain. The C.S. Lewis's reply was, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. You get that last line? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. And I agree. I think it should make us uncomfortable. If I'm not uncomfortable, I think we need to do one of two things. Either number one, you need to check my pulse to make sure I'm not dead. Or number two, I need to check my heart to make sure that I actually care. Um, Jesus is just getting to the heart of some matters here. Let's um, take a closer look. Verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. One of the differences between this and Matthew is, that if you remember in Matthew chapter 5, he says, and this is the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's less personal, and he's kind of making it more spiritual. This is kind of practical sounding, but it's saying, you poor, blessed are you poor, blessed are you hungry, blessed are you who, who weep now. He's making it personal. And remember, there's, 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 there's disciples there, but there's this whole crowd of people as well. He's, he wants them to hear um, that he has this, this personal concern for them. Uh, the word blessed, I say blessed, it's kind of a poetic way to say it, I think. Kind of like Shakespearean, you can just say blessed, 
It's the same word. There's no difference. Um, blessed kind of sounds cool. Um, but the word, the Greek word is makarios. Um, and it literally means just happy. So happy are the poor. But it's not the kind of happiness that we would usually associate with happiness in our modern way of thinking. It's not this kind of, oh, I'm so happy I've got a new car and, and that happiness will last for about a month until I ding it up. Or I'm so happy, uh, you know, people like me at work and that's just so easy and I'm happy because I'm full at the all-you-can-eat restaurant um, and that'll last about a day. Um, it's not that kind of happiness. Jesus is referring to this deeper abiding sense of happiness that, that persists. Um, people make the distinction between joy and happiness. The Bible doesn't really make that distinction. It's, it's about context. Right? So, um, but he says, blessed are you poor in spirit. I think the thing is we need to realize Jesus is, a, is obviously a, a spiritual man teaching spiritual things, right? And we know that from the cross-reference to Matthew. But, um, so there is this sense in which we need to realize our, our spiritual poverty to, to receive the blessing that God has for us. Um, we need to come to a point where inside we realize that we're completely bankrupt. There's nothing that we have that makes us acceptable to God in our own merit. And that's really a sense in what he's talking about. Um, at some stage, we must have all come to this sense of spiritual destitution. If we call ourselves Christian then we've come to the point where we realise that we are incapable of doing anything to make us acceptable to God. Um, he's done everything. And so this poor in spirit is exactly what, what it's targeting here. But it's not just a spiritual thing that he's saying. James 2.5 says, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. The actual poor. So we're not poor, but how, how does that work? What does that mean? Obviously not all poor, because there's plenty of poor people who are as materialistic as the next person, who have their plasma screen TVs and their whatever else it is. Um, it's interesting, spending some time in Jamaica a few years ago, and um, they're not a wealthy people. They earn a small fraction of what we earn here, but the cars that are driven and the clothes that are worn and, uh, and these kind of physical things, they're, they're just so prevalent. They can't afford it. So it's not that all poor are blessed, but there's something in this word that's used to describe the word, ble- to, to describe the word poor. Um, there's a few different Greek words that it could use, and, and Luke here uses the word um, tosos, p-t-o-s-s-o-s. P-t-o-s-s-o-s. It means literally to kneel. It's the word used for a beggar. And so there's this sense in which a beggar realises they can't rely on themselves for the, for the necessities of life. And it's a natural progression for that person to get to the point where they just need to rely on God. Um, uh, I told you before that I was baptised when I was 12. I had some ups and downs. Um, public school was rough. I remember a, a time I had this friend called, new friend at the school called Nick Tebby, and, uh, and I'd learnt all these good lessons in Sunday school. And, and we were playing footy in the, in the yard. It was Canberra, so it's rugby league, same as here. And... Uh, tackling each other when the teachers weren't looking and all that kind of stuff. And, and, Nick, and Nick was a bit of a nerd. I was too. Um, but I was kind of there and, and the guys are like, oh, he can't play, he's too much of a nerd. And I said, well, if he's not playing, I'm not playing either. And the guys are like, all right, okay. <laughs> <sighs> Fail. Um, so that's kind of, it's one of those things that happens in high school and um, it's just so important that we... That we d- disciple our children you know what's the next step from there 
I'm glad I did it. It's one of those few moments I'm proud of in high school, but I soon learnt that to be accepted in high school, it's very easy to be accepted by doing the wrong thing. You know? um, and so that led to a, a bit of a, a period of pain, I think, for me and my parents. Um, well, Nick left the school pretty soon after that to go to a nicer school, I stayed. Um, I was kind of 12 years of being spiritually bipolar, I think. I'd go, I'd go for a period I'd be just so passionate, wanting to just serve God with everything I had and then, and then I'd just get lost in this mire of selfishness and flesh. Um, one of these good seasons, I went to Tassie and did a, a youth work um, slash Bible college course and did that for a, a few years and that was great. I loved it. Um, but while I was over in Tassie, I decided I wanted to start learning to study medicine. So I applied. And in that whole process, I started to become completely reliant on myself. It wasn't a process I went on with God. It was a process I just did in my own strength. I thought, I can do this. That I can do attitude, you know. It's, um, that's not an attitude that God wants us to have. Um, and I turned away from God and came to uni in Newcastle, which is why I'm here, um, partly. And... Uh, and if you had have asked me then, I would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know. I'm a Christian for sure. Um, but I was no different to anyone else, you know. I wasn't salt, I wasn't light. The drinking, the drugs, the relationships, um, just looked exactly the same as everyone else. Um, but there was a time, a couple of years in, to, the, to med school, and I had some Christian friends in Jamaica that I'd made in one of those good seasons, good seasons, um, and I was going over to visit them. I was going to go do an elective over there. And uh, as I'm travelling over, I just found myself becoming more and more convicted of my way of life. And, uh, you know, I had secrets that I hadn't even kept from myself. I didn't want to admit things to myself, you know. And, and then I, I just began to pray and God said, you've got to make a few things right. I did. Um, there were tears. I was broken. Um, there was nothing inside me I realised that was worthy of God. Um, God spoke to me in that poverty and he, he reminded me of his promises, you know. Was I poor in spirit then? Yep. <laughs> was I blessed? Yep. And, uh, and it was the beginning of really that, that attitude of being able to just stay in God's promises, you know, to receive the blessings of living in his kingdom. Um, Matthew 25, 34 says, speaking of the, he's speaking of the end times, says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a promise. What a thing to look forward to. No wonder we feel blessed. Um, if I can digress for a second and just look at this idea of the kingdom, what is the kingdom? Um, is the kingdom now or is the kingdom in the future? What actually is it? Um, there's a little kind of pithy saying that will kind of capture it, I think, really well. The kingdom is a place where God's rule is recognised and where the benefits of his rule are received. So there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is that kingdom we look forward to in heaven and the, old, the, old, old, the new earth and the new heaven, um, revelations. Um, but there are 148 verses in the New Testament that talk about the kingdom of God and they're talking about both. The kingdom is here and now. What's our role in the kingdom? Well, we're kind of like an outpost of the kingdom, like an embassy. We're in a foreign land, you know. Um, you remember that verse that talks about us being... I've got it here. Um, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. So we are ambassadors of Christ. We are not, not members of this world. We're foreigners. Um, but we are part of these little pockets of the kingdom here. When God is king, um, John chapter 17 says, We are in the world, but not of the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's Jesus talking. Um, and if we're rich, well, comparatively, we're all rich. So in this kind of practical, physical, material sense, compared to the rest of the world, we're pretty wealthy, hey? The, probably the poorest person here is still better off than the average person on the planet Earth. Um, what does that mean for us, you know? It means having this poverty of spirit. Um, practically, it means not being trapped by that wealth not being a slave to the wealth that we have, but using our wealth for the purposes of God's kingdom. Um, you remember that Jesus says, it's easier for a, a rich, uh, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But with God, all things are possible. So thank God for his grace. Um, verse 21. Blessed are you when, you when you are hungry now, for you shall be filled or satisfied. Um, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I don't think these promises are limited to the subjects. I don't think it's only the people who are, who are, who are mourning now who will laugh. But what he's kind of saying is that even the poor receive the blessing. Even the hungry shall be filled. Even the weeping shall be comforted, shall laugh. Um, the promise, yes, is for the future, this future that we have with God in eternity in heaven, but there is some sense in which those blessings even occur now. The promise is then, the blessing is now, it's kind of like anticipating a birthday present, you know. You know exactly what you're going to get, for example. I was getting an iPad thing for my birthday and I was as excited before I got it as I was when I got it because I knew it was coming. Um, and it's the same kind of sense where we are blessed now, we're happy now because we have this promise and it's secure but also we have a taste of some of those blessings here and now when we're in God's kingdom. C.S. Lewis again, I want to read something that he says. He says, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. And I read that again. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So we're called to mourn. The Bible says, weep for those who weep. Um, three things we're to mourn for. One is the world. We mourn for the fact that the world is broken. And there are a lot of people who don't know God. And, and it is a sinful world. And we, we mourn over that, the loss of perfection. Um, the Bible says, weep with those who weep. We, we mourn for others. Um, and we mourn our own sin, our own separation from God, and that is what brings us back to God. Um, and that's, that's good mourning. Corrie Ten Boom, if I can just... A lot of you will know her. She was an amazing witness for Christ. She, she said, You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Contrast that to today's principles of something like Buddhism, um, where in Buddhism you are to forget suffering. It's kind of this, this ideal of... of of ignoring suffering in a sense, ignoring the suffering of yourself and the suffering of others. Um, you can see how Satan might use that to deaden people to their need for God, their need for a forgiver. 
And the other alternative, I guess, is to deaden our conscience with pleasure, which is where I was. Um, you know, just do what feels right. Um, but Jesus says there's a meaning behind the pain. Find the meaning. Why are you hurting? Um, verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. What do we do? Rejoice. Leap. <laughs> I just imagine coming home from work and, uh, you know, Leaping through the door, Kendall says, Honey, what happened? You're so excited. Did you have a really great day at work? No, I'm spurned by my workmates. They hate me. Praise God, you know. Um, not going to happen for the record, but hey, why not? Um, why are we hated? Why are Christians hated? Christians have been hated since Christians started, you know, um, since the first couple of centuries. And, and John says an interesting thing. Well, Jesus, uh, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. It's because of spiritual xenophobia, basically. We convict people with our lives. We're like the strangers, we're the foreigners, and people don't like foreigners. <laughs> Um, so since that early church Christians have been lied about they've been blamed for things that they didn't do they've been persecuted they were called cannibals because they shared the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ um, they were called immoral because they had these love feasts communion um, they were accused of incest because brother so and so married sister so and so um, they were even accused of arson of setting fire to Rome which you've probably heard about um, that's not true. And it happens today. We're called hypocrites. We're called hateful, narrow-minded. And uh, that doesn't really describe the Christians I know. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's this stereotype that the world has. And some of it is our own fault, let's be honest. But a lot of it is it's what we're talking about here, that we are in the world but not of the world. Um, you know, in AD 200, and uh, this is talking about leaping for joy when we get persecuted. Septimus Severus was the em emperor and they were persecuting Christians because they were considered to be uh, not very patriotic. They didn't worship the Roman gods. There's a, there was um, a, a girl called Perpetua, a young lady called Perpetua, and there were four others in jail with her, including a, a friend of hers called Felicity. And um, the charge against them was that they were Christians. Um, they were not sacrificing to the Roman gods. And they denied that Jesus... They, 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 they thought to sacrifice to the Roman god was to deny that Jesus was the one and only Lord. Right? Um, Perpetua was a 22-year-old mother. She had a new baby. Um, Felicity was her slave. And they were best of friends, which is not very common in that time. Felicity was also a new mother. She had a new baby. Um, and it was decided that they would die, they would be killed. Um, but for them to deny Jesus was worse than death. So the, uh, there's an eyewitness account, and the, the eyewitness account says, as they left prison, 
they did it joyfully as though they were on their way to heaven. And, uh, and then they set wild animals on them. The animals didn't kill them, actually. Um, I think maybe God wanted the Romans to realise that it was their responsibility if they were going to do it. So they sent soldiers to come in and kill these young girls, these young mothers. Um, and I just want to read out her final words to you before she died. Uh, it was, You must all stand fast in the faith and love one another. And do not be weakened by what we have gone through. I could never do that, I think. That's what you think, isn't it? You hear it, you go, oh, I would never do that. That's not me. I'd, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Ramy God's... But <laughs> the thing is, I think if we start following Jesus today, if we're filled with his spirit, we don't do it in our own strength. And this is what we have to remember. Um, we're filled with his spirit. It says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with his spirit. It's not just be filled once with his spirit. The, the, the tense is be, con- continue to be filled. Be being filled with his spirit. If we do that now, then when these trials come, it's Jesus who grants us the strength to do what he wants us to do. Colossians says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not us in us, it's Christ in us. Well, he then, Jesus moves on then to talk about the woes, which aren't in, in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Um, and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The Greek word woe is awe. It's kind of O-U-A-I. It's, it's, it's kind of like a wail, you know. He's not, he's not threatening them. He's not saying, if you do this, this is what's going to happen, guys. He's saying, what he's, it could be better translated as alas for you. He's, he's mourning for them. He's saying, alas for you, I regret this. Um, if being rich is all you have, if it's made you self-sufficient, if it's, deadened the, if it's deadened the pain of the separation that you have from God, then woe to you if you've decided to have peace with man instead of peace with God, then woe to you. You've made your decision. Um, you've already received your consolation. There's nothing that will satisfy your spiritual hunger if you're just going around being filled with earthly pleasures now. And you're going to mourn when those pleasures are done and when you don't have God. And I think we need to feel that same sorrow for those around us who, who are trapped by the way of the world. They're trapped by this need to get satisfaction from things other than God. Let's have the same sorrow for those people. Let's have the same sorrow that Jesus had. He was, he was evangelizing these people in a sense. Remember, he was talking to the disciples, but there was other people listening. There was the, there was the disciples, there was this kind of people who'd been his disciples for a while and a big crowd that were disciples, but there was a big crowd that were just checking him out. They just wanted to see who this guy was. Uh, and he wants them to hear the message that the only solution to their problems is to know God, the one who made them. Second um, Peter three nine says the Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He goes on to say, verse twenty seven. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Can't we just 
tolerate them or ignore them. <laughs> We've got to love them. I find it hard personally not to resent people who don't like me, let alone who hate me. Um, if I know someone at work doesn't like me and they kind of give me a hard time, or they, you know, I, I want to just not like them. And I want to talk to other people about them and get allies, you know, and say, aren't they a bad person? And Jesus says, speak well of them. Um, how? How do we do that? Well, it's not, again, in our own strength. And I think Jesus is really preparing these guys for the time after Pentecost when they receive the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the, the, um, the paraclete, you know, the helper. It's not us, but Christ in us. Um, I don't think we necessarily have to feel compassionate towards our enemies initially. I don't think that's realistic. Um, but he tells us how to bless these people. He says, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. The word bless there means um, speak well of, eulogios, um, pray for them. And it's funny, isn't it? When you, I don't know if you've ever had a grudge against someone and you started praying for them and you start feeling compassion for them. It's strange. And uh, I think maybe that's what Jesus had in mind. And remember what God did for us in Romans 5, 8, 5, 10, sorry. For while we were enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, and he was perfect. So let's have that same attitude. To, one, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, verse 29, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's a good idea, isn't it? I think in, in, in this whole section, love is the underlying principle. It starts with, starts with love. Love your enemies. And it's not necessarily loving to give someone everything they ask for. Um, does it help them? Probably not. Um, it's not necessarily loving to let someone get away with abuse. It doesn't, that's not loving them. They need to receive the consequences. But our limit so often is not our love when we, when we come across those challenges. Our limit so often is our selfishness or our pride, um, or our laziness, you know. Um, so more and more, let's make that limit love. When someone takes something that we want, let's figure out what love would demand. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do, do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get the same back, to get back the same amount. The word credit there, um, if that's what you've got in the New King, I think it's in the New King. It, it changes in the ESV, but it's, um, the word is charis. The Greek word is charis. It means graciousness. So what graciousness is it that you're showing if you only do good for those who do good to you? What graciousness, graciousness is it showing if you only lend to those who you're going to give it back? And uh, we know that God is the God of grace. Um, 
Love your enemies, it says, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. What an amazing God we have. I love that last line, because it kind of puts everything else into perspective. You know, we, we love because Christ first loved us. And uh, it's certainly not something we're doing off our own bat or in our own strength. Um, and there's a reward for what we do that is of God's plan for us, but he's the one that's merciful. Paul says, and I might just close with this, um, it's in Philippians chapter 2. Though This is talking about Christ. Though he was in very essence God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has shown us how to love, and he says, follow me. I love that part in John's Gospel at the end when he says, kind of, he breathes on them and they receive the Spirit. And he kind of says, he says, do not be afraid. <laughs> First, I think they're afraid because he comes to them and he's got these scars and he's, he's, he's dead. And then, but he says it again. If you look at it, he says, do not be afraid again. Why does he say it the second time? He's already told them once. I think he says it the second time because he's preparing them for what he's about to say to them next. And that is, now it's your turn. You know? And they're looking at him and these scars and they're remembering what he looked like on the cross and, and he says, don't be afraid. And he says, I'll, I'll send one to you who will be your helper. 